This Friday night, don't forget, we're having a night of worship. It'll begin at 7 o'clock. We encourage you to be here. If you'd like to come to our worship conference, you're invited to all of it. It'll begin Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, run through Friday night. We'll have break for dinner, and then it'll be on Saturday uh, up until lunch. We'll conclude at lunchtime on Saturday. So we just really encourage you uh, to take advantage of these opportunities this weekend, especially Friday night, 7 o'clock, our night of worship. A school starts tomorrow, and Calvary Chapel Christian, all the moms are elated. Calvary Chapel Christian School is in our second year. Last year, we had 23 students. This year, we have 51 students. And so we are real excited about the way the Lord has blessed and is growing our school. And so pray for our teachers, pray for Ann and for Teresa and for Donna, and for Vicki. Also pray for Shannon as she kind of coordinates things and organizes things. Pray for Pastor James and Randy. And pray for me that the Lord will continue to lead us and guide us, and uh, good things will continue to happen at Calvary Chapel Christian School. Tonight, we're in Psalm chapter 1. But we will only be there briefly. Because we're going to cover tonight the first 41 chapters of the book of Psalms. Lord, bless our study tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Hebrew title of the book of Psalms is Tehillim, which means book of praise. And they're just that, the praise songs of Israel. The 150 Psalms we could refer to as the Hebrew hymnal. All the Psalms, of course, were originally set to music. But over time, we've lost the notes. The melodies are gone. Only the lyrics live on. Perhaps this was God's way of encouraging each new generation to rewrite the musical score in a fresh and relevant fashion. The Psalms were written out of every possible situation, every possible human emotion. And as a result, they teach us how to relate to God in any and every situation. Think of it this way. Genesis through Esther is full of movements and places and dates and decrees. It records Hebrew history, in essence, the steps of their feet. But the Psalms provide us the beat of their heart. It's a diary of devotion. The book of Psalms chronicles the inner life of the Hebrew nation, their spiritual struggles, their spiritual victories. Picture the Psalms as the EKG readout. As God's people take the stress test called life. I like Ron Allen's summation of the book of Psalms. Here it is, 150 chapters in just seven words. Life is tough, but God is good. (laughs) That's the message of the Psalms of Israel. The 150 Psalms are actually divided into five books. Book 1, chapters 1 through 41. Book 2, chapters 42 through 72. Book 3, 73 to 89. Book 4, 90 through 106. And book 5, 107 through 150. Hebrew tradition says that the five divisions were intended to correspond with the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. And tonight we'll look at Book 1, Psalms 1 through 41. Psalm 1 describes the person that God wants all of us to be. Blessed is the man, or literally, happy, happy, happy is the man. 
The man who listens to right counsel, who lingers with the right people, and who laughs with folks who are really having fun. Verse 4 tells us, the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind drives away. But in contrast, God wants us to sink roots. He wants us to be planted by sources of spiritual refreshment. He wants us to sink roots, then to sprout shoots, then to bear fruits. And here's how you do it. Position for growth, first of all. Plant yourself by sources of spiritual refreshment. Progress daily, delight and meditate in God's Word. And finally, produce regularly. Remember, the purpose of a tree is to bear fruit. That's also the purpose of a Christian. God wants us to live lives that count for Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 attributes Psalm 2 to David. And it's taken as prophetic of Jesus Christ. It was probably written in a time of battle. But David's thoughts transcended his own situation, his own battle, and focused on the final battle. Psalm 2 becomes prophetic of the second coming of Jesus when God will destroy the wicked nations of the earth. The psalm opens, Why do the heathen rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Their rebellion, though, will be thwarted. Verse 4 tells us, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The Almighty laughs. The uprising of a few puny men are comical to him. Like a toddler trying to wrestle a grown man, the Lord chuckles at man's impotent defiance. Verse 6 tells us that God will set his king on the temple mount there in Jerusalem. God further identifies his ruler in verse 7 as his begotten son, which should tip us off. It reveals to us the real identity of this king. The New Testament tells us that God has only one begotten son, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. The rest of the psalm describes how Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's a picture, really, of the millennial kingdom. And the plea goes out in verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In other words, make peace with Jesus while the offer is on the table, lest in the end he break you to pieces. Psalm 3 is the first psalm with introductory comments. It says... A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, these introductory notes were not in the original manuscripts, but they are very old and they are considered to be reliable. So we'll pay close attention to them. In this psalm, David cries out in verse 1, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Remember, his sin with Bathsheba and his aloofness from his children had really wreaked havoc in David's family. David's sin had provoked Absalom's rebellion. And his enemies assumed that David was really getting what he deserved. God had forgiven him, though. And he responds to his enemies in verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. People had not forgiven him. God had. Aren't we glad that God is far more forgiving than people? 
Notice too, three times in Psalm 3, the word Selah appears as a break in the psalm. We'll find that this word occurs over and over in the Psalms, and it means literally to lift up. And most scholars believe it was an instruction in the song to think about what had just been said, to just pause and think about it. Literally, lift up that thought. Ponder that meaning. It's a vital point. Psalm 4 was written by David, and it was given to the chief musician. And whenever we see that notation, it means that David intended for the psalm to be used by the people of Israel in the public worship of the temple. Psalm 3 and 4 are what we could call psalms for insomnia. If you can't sleep, these two psalms are for you. It's interesting, every year in America, 800,000 pounds of barbiturates are consumed with people trying to get to sleep. Can you imagine? 800,000 pounds of barbiturates. We're sleepless in America. Over 200 sleep-inducing potions are on the market. But Psalm 4, verse 8, describes the formula that God prescribes for his people who can't sleep. He says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Guys, we'll sleep soundly if our faith is grounded in the faithfulness of God. It's been said, if you can't sleep, don't count sheep, talk to the shepherd. (laughs) Psalm 5 teaches us several important truths about God. Verses 1 through 3 tell us that he's a hearing God. Verses 4 through 7, a holy God. Verses 8 through 10, a helping God. And verses 11 through 12, A heaping God. In other words, he is willing to heap blessings on his people. In fact, verse 12 tells us, With favor you shall surround him as with a shield. The preface says that Psalm 6 should be played on an eight-stringed harp. The Hebrew word is shimineth, which means simply eight. And some scholars believe that this was a note to the musician to either raise or lure the song eight notes or an octave. Since Psalm 6 is a song of confession, it was probably intended to be dropped an octave. How many times have we prayed the opening lines of this psalm? O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. Verse 6 of the psalm implies that David's conscience so tormented him that he was waking up at night in a cold sweat. The psalm closes as David's faith kicks in. He knows that in the end, God's mercy will save him. Psalm 7 is the song of the slandered saint. A man named Cush has hurled malicious accusations at David. And if you have been falsely accused, let me suggest that you read Psalm 7. David opens the psalm by affirming both his faith and his innocence. He's the victim of lies. In this psalm, he asks the Lord to defend him from slanders and from the lies of men. Verse 11 tells us, God is a just God. He is a just judge. And catch this. And God is angry with the wicked every day. 
That word translated angry means literally to froth or foam at the mouth. You know, often we only tell people half the truth about God. That he's a loving God, that he's a kind God, that he's a merciful God. (laughs) But you need to tell them the rest of the story. God is also outraged and incensed over sin. He's angry with the wicked every day. He judges unrepentant sinners. That's also the God that we serve. Verse 15 says of the wicked man, He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he has made. Reminds me of the true story of the thief who broke the storefront window by slinging a manhole cover through the glass. But he was easily caught and apprehended when he fell into the manhole during his getaway. (laughs) Often the sinner falls victim to his own sin is the point. Now, imagine the shepherd boy David out in the field under a starry sky. He gazes at a billion stars. And he admires the genius of the God who created it all. And then it hits him. He's on earth, sitting there thinking about God. But God is in heaven, thinking about him. Incredible. God has cosmic vistas to enjoy. But God's attention is fixed on earth, us earthlings. And that's what prompts David to marvel in chapter 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's been noted that the raw materials that make up the human body could all be bought with a $10 bill. Reduce us to our most basic physical composition and we're nothing but glorified mud balls. You see, the the value of a man cannot be measured by looking inward. It can only be measured accurately by looking upward. We're special only because we're special to God. We were made in his image. God started us out, we're told in this psalm, a little lower than the angels. But we're destined one day to rule over them. God gave mankind dominion over all his creation, and one day all things will be placed under human feet. Of course, God's plan for man was spoiled by the sin of the first man, Adam, but it has been restored by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you and I can be all that man was meant to be. Psalm 9 is to the tune of the death of the Son. Another translation might be the death of a champion. And Jewish tradition attaches this psalm to David's triumph over the Philistine giant Goliath. The message of the psalm is this. Woe to those who defy God. Psalm 10 is probably a continuation of Psalm 9. The Hebrew version of the two psalms form an acrostic. Each section begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The psalm opens with the author pondering the age-old question, why do the wicked prosper? And he wonders why God's judgments are not immediate. And he points out to God how brazenly men have taken advantage of his patience. And he says in verse 11, he has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see it. In other words, God, do you realize that wicked men are out there feeling that they've pulled one over on you? 
the psalmist expresses his concern. The rest of the chapter, though, is the expression of his faith. He realizes, too, that God will bring justice, but in God's time. It's been said, the mill of God grinds slowly, but it grinds to powder. In other words, God is patient. God is long-suffering. But when God brings judgment, it is thorough and it is complete. Psalm 11, verse 3, asks the question, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And this is the question that we need to ask ourselves today. You see, our society is crumbling. As our society's Christian heritage, the foundation disintegrates. We have lost the underpinnings of truth and morality. How do you operate in a society that no longer values honesty and personal integrity? How do you operate in a society that no longer respects human life? that no longer believes in the sanctity of marriage. How do you get along in such a world? Psalm 11 answers the question posed in verse 3. Rather than become a part of the social erosion, the way you react to it is by pledging yourself to trust and to obey the Lord. You be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Psalm 12 is another psalm written by David with a dagger in his back. He's been betrayed by a friend And this psalm is his response to that betrayal. Verses 1 and 2 read, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. Where are my friends? Where have they gone? And in the next few verses, he asks God to cut off lying lips. Verses 6 through 8 contrast the words of men with the words of God. David makes four statements. One, God's words are true. The words of the Lord are pure, he says. Secondly, they're tested like silver tried in a furnace. And third, they're trustworthy. God keeps his word. Fourthly, they're timeless. They last forever. Here are the words of God. They're true. They're tested. They're trustworthy. And they're timeless. That's why we need to take heed to those words and apply them to our lives. Psalm 13 was probably written by David while on the run from Saul. Remember, it had been 20 years since Samuel anointed him king and promised him the throne. And that's why David opens the psalm, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Four times David cries out, how long? Reminds me of the Puritan pastor, Phillips Brooks, who was pacing the floor back and forth, back and forth, when someone asked him why he was so concerned, why he was obviously so worried. And he answered, well... I am in a hurry, and God is not. You see, there's often a lapse between God's promises and their fulfillment. And that's why it takes patience to inherit the promises. In verse 5 of chapter 13, David trusts in God's salvation. And you remember in his story twice, he could have taken matters into his own hands. He could have 
killed Saul himself, but instead he honored Saul's position as king and left the issue in the hands of God. He trusted the Lord. He trusted in God's salvation, not a man-made salvation. And that's why the psalm begins with sighing, but through faith it ends in singing. Psalm 14 begins, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Reminds me of the little cartoon I saw one time called The Agnostic Fleas. And it pictured two fleas strolling across the furry backside of a dog. When one of them turned to the other and asked, I wonder if there really is a dog. Hey, the evidence for God is overwhelming. It's amazing. Look at the order and the symmetry around us. Order never flows out of chaos. Order presupposes an intelligence. There is no way for the complex systems of life in nature to have simply sprung out of chance occurrences of accidental circumstances. Only a fool would say that there is no God. It's been said, earth houses atheists many. Hell is not occupied by any. In hell, everyone's a believer. They've seen, they've known that there is indeed a God. Psalm 15 asks the question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And verse 2 gives the answer, he who walks uprightly. And the rest of the psalm describes an upright walk. It's a psalm that we should emulate. It's a model for our living. Psalm 16 is called a mictum of David. The word mictum could have one of three definitions. It could mean jewel. In other words, this psalm is special. It's a treasured psalm. It could mean engraved, which would mean that the psalm is one you don't want to forget. You want to make sure you write it down. It could mean secret, that this psalm has a secret, hidden meaning. Actually, all three are true of Psalm 16. The most intriguing verses to me are verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 tells us, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Understand, this cannot be David speaking. David now has transcended his own situation, for his body, remember, did see corruption. If you found it today, it would be nothing but dust. Our Lord Jesus Christ alone has avoided death's decay. And that's why Peter quotes verse 10 in Acts chapter 2 as prophetic of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 11 continues, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a way to sum up heaven. Pleasures forevermore. (laughs) We can only dream of what all that includes. David wrote Psalm 17 after being attacked and accused. And rather than get better, David took it as a test. He asked God to handle his case and to win his vindication. It's interesting. David's chief concern is that he won't stumble, that he won't sin. And that's why he asked God in verse 5 to steady his steps. He says in verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. 
He says in verse 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Notice David's longing. It's threefold. He wants to know God. He wants to be right with God. And he wants to be like God. Do you share that passion? Do you want to know God? Do you want to be right with God? Do you want to be like God? David prays for deliverance. But often a quick deliverance can short circuit a long-term transformation. Hey, when God turns up the heat in our lives, our immediate reaction is to want to jump out of the pan. But so often we need to wait. We need to let the pressure, the heat of the trial, melt us and mold us and purify us. And that's what David does here in Psalm 17. Psalm 18 was written after Saul's death had paved the way for David to become king. And David says in verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Psalm 18 implies that the outcome of the battle that took Saul's life was full of divine intervention. Verses 13 through 15 indicate a violent storm, that an earthquake were a part of the weapons that God utilized to defeat Saul. A casual glance at verse 24 might cause you to think the Bible teaches a work salvation. It says, the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness. But understand here, David's righteousness was his integrity. It was the sincerity of his faith. It was his desire to serve God alone. It was not some self-contrived resume of good works. God rewarded his faith-filled attitude. It's what God did. In verse 29... David recounts how God gave him supernatural strength for trying times. I love this verse. He says, for by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Hey, he'll bestow that kind of supernatural strength on you if you'll trust in his son, Jesus. Psalm 19 teaches us that God has revealed himself in two places. In the scripture and in nature. Verse 1 declares, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Hey, a starry sky declares God's glory in every language. But nature is a flawed picture. Mother nature has been defiled by sin, and she's not always an accurate reflection of God the Father. But there's another place to find the revelation of God. Verse 7 tells us, The law of the Lord is perfect. Nature alone will not reveal to us the true nature of God. We need more than nature. We need more than just the firmament, God's glory in the heavens. We need His Word. Here is the perfect revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's God's Word that will convert the soul. It's God's Word that will make wise the simple. It's God's Word that will rejoice the heart. He says the Bible is more valuable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. Cherish it. At the close of Psalm 19, David asked God to cleanse me from secret faults. You know, we all have our blind spots. We all have the things about ourselves we can't see. And David asked for God to eliminate his blind spots. Recently, we allowed my 15-year-old daughter to drive the family car down the freeway. And I told her to change lanes. 
And she did, but she didn't notice the tractor trailer in her blind spot. And the whole family ended up about six inches from being six feet under. Blind spots are dangerous. Especially spiritual blind spots. There are some things we can't see about ourselves. It's only the people around us that can see them. Or perhaps God can see them. And that's why we need to constantly ask God to open our eyes to secret sins, to hidden sins, to undetected sins. We need to repent of them and get rid of them. Psalms 20 and 21 are companion psalms. Psalm 20 is the prayer before Israel fights the battle. Psalm 21 is the praise after Israel wins the battle. There are two interesting psalms to read back to back. Verse 7 is the key to these psalms. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Israel was victorious because she had a secret weapon. She trusted in God. Never trust in man-made tools or human implements or methods. Always put your trust in the power of God. Psalm 22 looks beyond the agonies of David and foresees the cross of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Rome didn't invent the form of execution known as crucifixion for a thousand years after David lived. But this psalm, written by David, amazingly predicts 33 details that were fulfilled in the cross of Christ. Verse 1, for example, was is the words that Jesus quoted on the cross. You remember he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That was the Aramaic for verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At Calvary, Jesus became sin for us. The Son was separated from the Father so that we could be reunited and be made one with God. Notice 2 verse 3, but you are holy who inhabit the praises of Israel. This is one of the reasons I love to praise the Lord. The byproduct of praise is that it creates an atmosphere that's conducive for God to work. God inhabits our praises. So if you want God to do a work in your life, begin to praise Him, begin to worship Him. That opens the door. In verses 7 and 8, we hear the jeers of the crowd at the foot of the cross. Verse 14 describes Messiah's physical sufferings. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Verse 16 says, they pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. It all speaks of the cross a thousand years before the fact. Psalm 22 is an amazing prophecy. Verse 22 is quoted of Jesus in Hebrews 2, verse 12. It says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Jesus hung on the cross, but now that he's risen from the dead, where is he? Well, he's hanging out in the midst of his people. Verse 27 reminds us that one day all the nations will worship the risen Lord. Psalm 23 is the shepherd's song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I like how one little boy quoted it. The Lord is my shepherd, I've got all I want. You know, both work. (laughs) This psalm is divided into three stanzas. 
The shepherd provides, verses 1 through 3. The shepherd protects, verse 4. And the shepherd promotes the flock, verses 5 and 6. Think of it this way. Our grazing, our groping, and our glory. Verse 2 says, he makes me to lie down. Only a contented sheep is able to lie down. Verse 3 says, he leads me in the path of righteousness. In other words, the shepherd never drives the sheep. He wins their confidence and he instills within them a desire to follow him. Once an Israeli tour guide was pointing this fact out to his groups until one day he saw a man driving his sheep. And he stopped and he asked the man, I didn't think a shepherd ever drove his flock. I always thought a shepherd led the flock. And that's when the man sort of snarled and said, you're right, but I'm not a shepherd. I'm a butcher. Satan is a butcher. And Satan is the one who drives and forces and beats the sheep, but not the good shepherd. He loves his sheep and he leads them and guides them. And when the footing gets dangerous and the flock passes through the valley of the shadow of death, the shepherd is right there to protect them with his rod and his staff. He leads them all the way to glory. He exalts them over their enemies. He fills their cup to overflowing and they live forever in the house of the Lord. Hey, I want to follow the shepherd. Verse 6 sums it up. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Did you hear about the man who had three kids? He said he thought about naming them surely, goodness, and mercy. But he didn't because he was worried they'd follow him all the days of his life. So, Our country values private property and the rights of ownership. But the deed to your home, understand, is an illusion. For Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us, the earth is the Lord's. In all its fullness, all land, even your land, belongs not to you, but to the Lord. You're a tenant on God's planet. In the Hebrew, the acrostic psalms are as follows, 9 and 10, Psalm 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, and 145. In Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5, David asked the Lord, Show me, Lord. Teach me. Lead me. I understand he's never complacent. David is always wanting to grow in his relationship with God. But notice who it is that God teaches. Verse 9 of Psalm 25. The humble he teaches his way. David says in verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth. According to your mercy, remember me. I'm certain we've all prayed that prayer, haven't we? He adds in verse 11, Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David was such a humble man. One thing about David, he was always quick to admit his sins, and that's why David enjoyed such intimacy with God. Verse 14 tells us, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. Psalm 26 is another cry for vindication. It too may have been written while David was a fugitive. In verse 8, he longs to return to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Psalm 27 begins boldly. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, all great men 
seem to have one driving passion in their life. And David's passion was to know the Lord. Look what he says in verse 4 of Psalm 27. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What an ambition. Notice he didn't say, these 100 things I seek. This one thing I seek, to know the Almighty, to hang with Him, to behold His beauty, to have an intimacy with God. What's your driving passion? David tells us in verse 8, he said, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. I like that. In other words, when God challenged him with the prospects for intimacy, when God invited him to draw close, David's faith rose to the challenge. You know, many of us refuse God's overtures for a deeper intimacy because we feel so unworthy. We feel that we don't deserve such closeness. And of course, we're not worthy. But when God invites us to come, when he says, seek my face, then we need to have the faith To rise up and say, your face, Lord, I will seek. The rest of the psalm describes the Lord's protection in David's praise. Verse 10 says that even when his father and mother forsake him, God will remain faithful. Psalm 28 begins, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. I think it was the Irish pastor who said, Christ is the only solid rock. All others are shamrocks. That's bad. Verse 28 is referred to by scholars as an imprecatory psalm. Imprecate means to curse. And in Psalm 28, God uses David to call down curses and judgments on his enemies. We're going to run across several imprecatory psalms uh, as we go through. Psalm 29 hearkens us back to the flood of Noah. David tracks the Lord in the storm. The thunder and the lightning, the mighty winds and many waters were all revelations of the power of God. And verse 10 sums up this psalm. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. Psalm 30 was written to commemorate the completion of David's palace. You remember before his coronation... There were several occasions when David thought that his enemies would swallow him up, but God delivered him. Now he's on the other end of the trial. Now with 20-20 hindsight, he can see the faithfulness of God. And I love what he says of God in verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We need to remember that trials are always temporary. It's God's blessings that are forever. Psalm 31 is a cry for deliverance. Verse 2 sets the tone. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. Verse 5 again takes us to the cross of Jesus. It was Jesus who quoted this verse. Into your hand I commend my spirit. Jesus faced death. 
could face death because he trusted his spirit into the hands of a faithful God. And the same assurance will save us anguish and heartache when we have to face the same enemy. Psalm 31 is an interesting psalm because it was quoted not only by Jesus, but by Jonah and by Jeremiah. It's really a mosaic of both misery and mercy, of highs and lows. It's a wonderful psalm. In it, David's trial is dark, but his faith is bright. It reminds me of the old quotation, joys are our wings and sorrows are our spurs. We all want to soar on the good times, but often it's the difficult times that cause us to grow in deeper ways. I love verse 15 of Psalm 31. It says, my times are in your hand. I love that. It says to me that the Lord not only has a plan for my life, but he has a schedule. He's going to work, but he's going to work in his timing. He's working according to his clock, not mine. I need to trust him. In verse 23, David speaks to us, O love the Lord, all you saints, all you his saints. Psalm 32 is a contemplation, we're told. The Hebrew word for contemplation is my skill or a sermon set to music. And in this psalm, David reflects back on his sin with Bathsheba and the agony that it brought upon him. His intent is to steer us away from making similar mistakes. It opens with a reminder of God's mercy. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. This is true of every believer who has put his or her trust in Jesus Christ. You see, the blood of Jesus doctors the ledgers in heaven. The blood of Jesus erases your debts and credits you with the righteousness of God. That's a cool deal. The blood of Jesus does both. And blessed or happy is the person who trusts in him, whose sin has been imputed. It's been blocked. The righteousness of God has been imputed and his sin has been blotted out. Happy is that man. David was a happy man for most of his life, but there was a time when he was unhappy. As a matter of fact, for a whole year, he covered up his sin. He says of that time in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. See, unconfessed sin in David's life and the conviction that it brought took its toll. Over time, it robbed David of his strength, of his excitement, enthusiasm about life, his vitality. On the outside, how he put a smile on his face, he kept up appearances, but inwardly he was miserable. And relief only came when he stopped concealing and started confessing. Are you hiding something tonight? Are you trying to pull one over on God? you got a smile on your face, but you're eaten up inside. The only relief will come when you confess it to God. David closes with an admonition in verse 9. Do not be like the horse or like the mule. <laughs> Why be stubborn? If you'll confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Psalm 33 is another encouragement to praise the Lord. We're told in verse 2, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. In other words, jazz it up, man. Juice it up, turn up the amps. Worship is a combination of both art and heart. The rest of the psalm explains why God is worthy to be worshipped. Since Saul was after David in Israel, David decided to ask the Philistines for refuge. Why he ever thought that his enemies would welcome him, we don't know. But it was soon apparent that he had made a stupid move. And to escape the Philistines, David pretended to be mad. He started frothing at the mouth and all, and the Philistines said, Man, we've got too many nuts already. Let him go. And they set him free. And Psalm 34 was written in response to David's escape from the Philistines. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. In verse 7, David credits the angel of the Lord with his deliverance. And I love what David says in verse 8. He challenges us to conduct our own taste test. Oh, taste and see, for the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And in verse 10, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. You need to write that down. So many times Satan will come and he will tempt you. Oh, look at what you're giving up. Look at what you're missing by following the Lord, by being a Christian. Wait a minute. You just hold that verse up in his face. Those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. David sums up his life at the time in verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We all could say amen to that. You know, the Christian life is not a trouble-free existence. As a matter of fact, when you become a Christian, you really swap one set of troubles for another. But the difference is God becomes your deliverer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalms 35 and 36 are also imprecatory psalms. God uses the psalmist to blast his enemies. Understand, David was a godly man with a fiery temper. He hated sin. He got angry at sinners. And what saved him was his willingness to take his feelings to God. C.S. Lewis once observed, If the Jews cursed more bitterly than pagans, it was because they took right and wrong more seriously. And that probably explains some of David's harsh statements towards his enemies in the next couple of chapters. Verse 1 sort of sets the tone. David asks God, fight against those who fight against me. Now, as Christians, Jesus has sort of called us to a higher standard. We're to love the people who hate us. We're to pray for those who persecute us. But I think we can still pray David's prayer. We can love the sinner, and yet we can still ask God to thwart the sinner's plans. Many times I've prayed, Lord, I'll love him if you'll stop him. If you'll upset him in what he's trying to do. And that's the essence, really, of the prayer here in Psalm 35. Verse 1 of Psalm 36 tells us the theme of this psalm. It's an oracle 
within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. And here's what he says of the wicked man. There's no fear of God in him. There's a boastful spirit. He lies to get his own way. He can't be trusted. These are all his characteristics. But then David contrasts the wicked man with God. He says, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. How precious is your loving kindness. You give drink from the river of your pleasures. With you is the fountain of life. Man is bad. God is good. The point is trust God, not man. Four Psalms deal specifically with the age-old question, if God is good and just, then why do the evil prosper? Psalms 10, 37, 49, and 73 all tackle that problem. And notice Psalm 37. The first thing David says about the issue, do not fret because of evildoers. Oh, we're tempted to threat, fret. I'm tempted to fret. When I hear of an abortionist making millions of dollars killing babies, or a porno peddler getting rich exploiting women, or the barons of business trampling over the rights of workers just to pad the portfolios of their investors, I get mad. I start to fret. I lash out. It upsets me. We are all tempted to fret when we see the evil prosper. But David tells us, do not fret. You see, the response is faith, not fret. Verse 2 affirms, they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Guys, don't let the evil around you take your eyes off the faithfulness of God. It can if you'll let it, but don't let it. Have faith. Don't fret. We need to do what we can to stop injustice. But remember, we live in a fallen world. One day God will right all wrongs, but not until Jesus returns. Verses 4 and 5 are a couple of my favorite verses. Perhaps they're yours too. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. The Lord loves to delight with good gifts the person who delights in Him, who takes His joy in God. Hey, it's a father-child kind of thing. The more my kids enjoy hanging out with me, the more I'm inclined to want to give good gifts to them. And that's how God feels when we delight in Him. Again in verse 8, David says, Do not fret. It only causes harm. Guys, when we are focused on life's injustices rather than on God's mercies, it poisons our attitude. We can get sour in a hurry. I love the quote, look at others and be distressed. Look at self and be depressed, but look to Jesus and be at rest. We need to remember that. We look at the injustice all around us and we figure there's no hope for us, but God can take care of his own. David says in verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. God can take care of his own. The rest of the chapter describes how God will make all things right in the end. In Psalm 38, verse 4, David admits, My iniquities have gone over my head 
Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. In other words, he is drowning in guilt at this point. And in verse 7 he says, My loins are full of inflammation. And some have guessed that his sin was a sexual sin. And he had picked up a venereal disease in the process. It's a frightening thing to consider that one lustful indulgence, one slip, and you can contract a painful illness that you'll have to carry for the rest of your life. That should be a scary thing to you young people, especially. God forbid sex outside of marriage not to rob you of fun, but to protect you from pain. Emotional pain and physical pain. It's been said, sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it's hurtful. And that's certainly true of sexual sin. In the rest of the psalm, David describes the pain that his sin has caused. Psalm 39 continues with David's repentance. And it explores the vanity of our life on earth. In verse 5, David confesses, Every man at his best state is but a vapor. You're nothing but a soap bubble. He says in verse 6, Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. This is why David says to God in verse 7, My hope is in you. Only God can bring meaning and purpose to this life. And that's why there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing more vital to you or me than to make sure we are in a right relationship with God. And that's David's thought here in Psalm 39. Psalm 40 was written by David after the end of a severe trial. He says in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit and set my feet upon a rock. I love what David says in verse 5. God's thoughts toward him are innumerable. God is thinking about you as you're sitting here tonight thinking about him. That's so cool. Verses 6 through 8 are quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 as the words of Jesus on the day that he left heaven for the manger in Bethlehem. You see, the millions of bulls and goats offered in the temple worship as a sacrifice for the people's sin had pacified but not fully satisfied a holy God. They had covered sin temporarily, but they had not blotted it out. God's righteousness demanded more. Then sin-stained blood, it called for a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus alone could satisfy that requirement. And here Jesus dedicates himself to do the Father's will, to be our sacrifice, and to fulfill God's requirements for our salvation. Psalm 41 is another psalm of deliverance. David's enemies are stirring up rumors that the king is sick, that he won't recover, and it has created a crisis of confidence. It was probably Absalom who was behind these rumors. And Absalom was spreading these lies in order to launch his own plot to take over the kingdom. And David moans in verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. 
could have been speaking of Absalom, or he could have been speaking of his best friend and advisor, Ahithophel, who was one of Absalom's partners in the rebellion. Think of it. David's son has betrayed him. His bosom buddy, Ahithophel, has stabbed him in the back. So where does David turn now? Where do you turn when you've been betrayed and stabbed in the back? Verse 10 tells us, David says, But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. David always knew where to turn. I hope you do too. He turned to the Lord. Father, that's where we turn tonight. Lord, no matter the trial, no matter the difficulty that we're in, no matter the betrayal that may have inflicted us, Lord, we know that you're in charge. Lord, we know that when the trial has had its work in our lives, you will lift us up again. And so, Lord, we pray that we will learn from our lesson. Lord, that we would be open to what you want to do in our lives. Lord, that we wouldn't rush the test and miss the lesson, but that we would be patient and let the heat of the trial melt us and mold us and make us into the people you want us to be. Lord, we love you. Oh, Lord, we love you. And our thoughts are on you tonight. But, Lord, we've seen several times where your thoughts are on us all the time. (laughs) How you love us so much. Bless us this week, Lord, not because we deserve it, but for your mercy's sake. And we will be people who will give you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.